You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Well, good morning, Illini Life. Uh, If you haven't turned me off because of that heresy, I'm excited to be with you this morning. I'm excited we're starting a new sermon series today. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be focusing on the Old Testament, and specifically the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Now, if you were with us in the spring last year, you may recall that we worked through the book of Judges, and there we saw saw God's mercy in chaos. It was a chaotic book, chaotic circumstances. And throughout the book of Judges, we saw this repeated cycle where Israel would forsake God, they'd be oppressed by the people around them, they'd cry out to God, God would hear them and he would have compassion and save them through a deliverer, a judge. And that cycle, remember, it repeated over and over and over again in the downward spiral of the book of Judges. The book of Samuel, it picks up where Judges left off. We begin in the book of Samuel, in the end of the days of the Judges, with the final judge, Samuel, who the book is named for. He will serve as a transitionary figure in the history of Israel as they move from a a disjointed band of tribes to an established nation with the king. God's intent, see, God's intent with Israel was always to be their king, to be king over his people. And in the days of the judges, he raised up a leader to help bring them back to him as their king, him as their ruler. But he remained their God. He was always their God and king. And the people, when we reach them in Samuel, they've had enough. They take notice that the nations around them, they all have kings. And they demand that God gives them a king too. That's what we get this, this series title for. In an attempt to break the cycle of the judges, they forsake God as their king one more time, crying out, give us a king like everyone else. We want what they have. And God, God in his mercy, he gives them their desire an earthly king who will be anointed by him and who is to walk with him as they lead the nation. Now, if you know the story of Israel, you know this is another disaster for them. It's another false trail. It's another story of Israel straying from God and be brought back, called back to him. What God began doing in establishing an earthly king It won't come to full reality, to perfection, until Jesus takes on human flesh and enters creation. The cry of God's people, give us a king, it's ultimately answered as God being the heavenly king and the earthly king in the God-man Jesus Christ. What I want us to see over these next five weeks as we dive into this book is that God is the true king. He always has been and always will be. See, Israel, they looked forward to Jesus as the true king. And they got impatient. They demanded a king now. They couldn't wait. Likewise, we look forward to the true king coming again. We need to take note and be patient. The book of Samuel, it shows us God's sovereignty and kingship. And then it invites us to wait to wait on the Lord, to, full, to bring that kingdom to its fullness. These two books in our Bible, they're really one book. It's just that they're 
They're so massive, it kind of split it into two volumes at some point during uh, how the Bible arrived to us. It's 55 chapters total. And, and right now, you might be wide-eyed and twitchy as you think, how are you going to possibly do that in five weeks? And, and I can safely say, uh, those of us that are teaching in this series feel the same way. <laughs> and I felt that way this, these past weeks. This is a lot of ground to cover. And so to do that, we are going to take a zoomed out approach. We're going to step back and take a wide angle perspective of this book. We're going to focus mostly on the narrative and the broad theology, not the specifics. This book, it's a historic narrative. It's a true story from history that reveals God's heart for his people and his desire to be with them. And it actually, it breaks up quite nicely. It breaks up quite nicely into five main chunks. Most commentaries and editors and uh, studiers have, have figured this out. Each chunk, there is a different primary character that God is focusing on, that he's working on to lead his people. The first is, is Samuel, the, the prophet, the judge that, that I mentioned earlier, that the book is named for. Then there's the first king, Saul. And then there's two sections focused on David, who's another king. And then it ends with a future yearning, talking about the kingdom, with a future yearning for the true king that will come in the line of David. You know, each week as we work through this, this book, each message, it's going to be more of a character study on that key leader, that key figure. And we'll summarize what we know about them and what God has revealed to us through them. And we'll focus in on a key passage that's central to understanding them and the theology of that part, portion of the book. We're covering a lot of ground fast, so it's not going to be a verse-by-verse teaching necessarily. It's going to be more snapshots and sampling of passages to explore. I hope you'll stick with us. Why don't we dive in then and see our first character? Why don't we get a chance to, to meet Samuel? He is the focus of the first seven chapters of this book. So we're going to cover seven chapters this morning. As I mentioned, he's the last judge in Israel. But he's also this strange mashup of, of a bunch of different roles for Israel. He'll, he's, he's sort of serving in this transitionary period for the king. Uh, for the people of God. He'll lead and deliver the people as a judge. He'll speak to the people on behalf of God, anointing kings. He's fulfilling the role of a prophet as he does these things. And he's raised and served un- and serves under a priest. He actually performs priestly roles and, and duties as we see him. So Samuel, he's, he's a prophet, a priest, and a judge all rolled into one. This, this strange mashup. As we get to know Samuel, we're going to see that these different roles, they come through in prominence at different times for the needs of the circumstances, where Israel is at and what they needed. Samuel was equipped and empowered by God for the unique needs of this transitionary time. He's a prophet from God's grace, a judge out of God's provision, and a priest from God's compassion. That's the key this morning. That's what I want us to see. Samuel is the embodiment of God's grace to Israel in need. Samuel shows us God's grace. Now to unpack that, we're going to take a look at three snapshots this morning in Samuel's life. The first is the situation surrounding his birth. It's found in chapter 1. The second is God calling Samuel when he's a young boy. That's found in chapter 3. And the final snapshot is Samuel in action. Many of you studied this in your small group this week. That's, he's serving the nation that's found in chapter 7. So let's meet Samuel. Let's start taking a look at his birth, the situation around his birth. 
We're told right away in the opening of the book, chapter 1, that there's a man named Elkanah, and he has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children. She had many children. But Hannah, she was barren. She had none. Year after year, Peninnah would provoke her and mock her for being barren. See, Peninnah, she, she was the original mean girl. She flaunted what she had, she'd been blessed with. She ridiculed Hannah for what she longed for and what she lacked. In her hard situation, she used it and drive a wedge between the two of them. And Hannah, she often wept and cried over her situation. And on such occasion, she's at the temple before the priest Eli. And she makes a vow to the Lord. Let's read. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So in her deep anguish, being mocked and ridiculed for not having a child, she calls out to God. She asks him for help. She says, remember me and give me a son. And in turn, I'll, I'll devote him to service for you. He'll serve you all the days of his life. And this, this is a desperate woman. She is willing to endure pregnancy and childbirth and only get to be with the child for its early years of its life before giving it back to the Lord to serve him. And as if she hasn't endured enough hardship, enough ridicule, enough misunderstanding and mocking, the priest Eli, as he sees her, her praying and making this vow, he assumes she's drunk, and he rebukes her. This poor woman, right? How misunderstood. And she goes on to clarify, she says, I'm not drunk, I, I'm, I'm praying. I am pouring my soul out to the Lord. I am in anguish. And Eli, he understands, he sees her. Let's see, let's see what he says. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. See, Eli sees her. He sees her. He understands. He gets it. He meets her in her anguish, and he blesses her. In her grief and torment, she's met with his kindness. He offers a blessing. He says, the God of Israel, grant your petition you have made to him. He says, God, answer your prayers. What comfort. What comfort in, in despair and anguish. What an encouragement. And, and Hannah, she responds like all righteous individuals would. She makes a pun. Maybe you, didn't, maybe you don't catch this. It's great. In verse 18, she says, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Favor is the Hebrew word hen. The same root that her name is derived from. Hannah means God has favored me. So she says, Let Hannah find hen. Let God has favored me find favor, right? I find it hilarious. 
And because, probably because puns are the most righteous form of humor and God smiles upon those of us that find that funny, he answers her prayer. <laughs> That's not actually good theology, by the way. Uh, so so in, in response to her, her pun, we, we read, They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Hannah found Hen. The Lord remembered her, and she conceived and gave birth to a son, Samuel. Now there's a lot going on in, in these uh, couple of verses that I want us to see. They're really important. The language that's used, the Lord remembered her, that's intentional. Very intentional language here. It's the exact same language used when we read about the Lord remembering Rachel and opening her womb when she was barren so she conceived Joseph. It's intended to call our attention back to the fathers of faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It, remember, it reminds us of God's promise and God's provision. See, because Hannah, Hannah stands in a long line of barren women who faithfully called out to God for a child. And, and God heard them. Out of impossible circumstances, God brings forth children. Isaac, Joseph, Samuel, and so many others. Where life seemed impossible, God does the miraculous and provides. And nowhere do we see this more clearly than when a virgin gives birth to the true king. Jesus is the fulfillment of what God had been doing through these barren women throughout time. Now another important thing that I want us to see in this verse is the name that she gives the child, Samuel. Samuel means God heard. His name reminds all those that say it that God hears our prayers. God heard Hannah and answered her. He remembered her and she found favor with him. So she names the child to draw her attention back to that. The child she asked for has been provided. And in case you missed it, the chapter ends, in case the reader misses it, the chapter ends with this obnoxious reminder of the asking. We're told that Hannah, she follows through with the vow she gives Samuel back to the Lord to serve him. And in doing so, she, uh, she weans him. He's probably about three years old. She brings him back to the priest Eli to serve the Lord the rest of her days. And that interaction we have in verses 26 and 27. Let's read. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who, who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord for as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. So Hannah makes good on her vow. She drops little Samuel off with Eli the priest to serve God for the rest of his life. And then, in the last two verses we read, four times Hannah uses the Hebrew word for ask. This is the obnoxious reminder that he was the child asked for. You know, an alternative rendering that makes this more clear of the, uh, of the language that maybe our, our English might uh, obscure, it might read this way. For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked from him. 
and I have also given back what was asked to Yahweh. All the days he is the one that is asked of Yahweh. It's like ask, it's just all this repetition. Don't forget, Samuel is the one that was asked for, and God heard the ask. The point is clear. Samuel was the one that was asked for, and God was the one that heard and provided. Out of his grace, God provided Samuel for Hannah and for Israel. Central, central to this part of this story is, the, is prayer. Prayer is a powerful thing in our lives. It's an integral part of our walk with the Lord. When we ask, we have a chance to be heard and answered So I wonder, how often do you ask? How often do you pour out your heart? How often in anguish, in joy, in troubled times, and in in happy times, do you call out to God and ask? He longs to hear from us. He longs to answer. Well, let's keep moving on. We have some more Uh, snapshots in Samuel's life to take a look at. Having been dropped off with, this little boy dropped off with the priest to serve the Lord, he finds himself in a very strange setting. See, Eli, the priest, he serves the Lord and he seems to care about doing so faithfully. He wants to be a faithful man of God. But he has these two sons. And there's no better way to describe these two sons as utter train wrecks. The second half of Uh, of chapter 2 in Samuel, it has these competing images of Samuel serving the Lord and growing in his knowledge and love and service to God, juxtaposed with Eli's worthless sons stealing from the offering of the Lord, oppressing the people, taking sexual advantage of the women who serve at the temple. Ultimately, we're left at the end of this chapter with a clear trajectory for both Samuel and Eli's sons. Samuel is growing in favor with the Lord and with men. And Eli's sons, there's an oracle prophesied against them. They will face judgment and death for their wrongdoings. And Eli, he doesn't get off the hook. He likewise will receive judgment. He'll receive judgment for not correcting his son's sins and corruption. See, from a place of power, his sons abused Israel. And Eli is held accountable for being lenient with them, for turning a blind eye. He gets the chance to raise Samuel up as a priest, but he'll pass away. He'll fade to the background and Samuel will rise to prominence and serve the Lord and lead the the nation. The consequences of Eli turning a blind eye to the evil and sin his sons were committing, they're strong, they're harsh, as they should be. All leaders who fail to protect the people of God, that fail to protect anyone, is being oppressed, is having evil done against them, or sinned, being sinned against. Any leader who fails to protect others, knowingly experiencing those, will be held to harsh consequences. And with that backdrop, Samuel's called in chapter 3. These worthless sons are being judged and Eli is being cast out and Samuel is called by the Lord. It opens with with a very bleak statement in chapter 3. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. And the word of the Lord was rare. It was rare because the people didn't have ears to hear. The word of the Lord was rare because they couldn't 
hear God. They weren't faithfully following him. I think we suffer the same fate at times. The word of the Lord is around us. It's so accessible. We have it written. We have it preached. We have books and books of it being unwrapped and unfolded for us to understand. The Spirit lives in us and reveals the truth of God. We can struggle to hear God at times, can't you? I know I can. We struggle not because there is an absence of the word of the Lord, not because he is being silent. Often, we struggle to hear because we lack eyes to see and ears to hear, just as Jesus shared with us back in Luke. Now, Samuel, Samuel faithfully sought the Lord. He faithfully served him. He was devoted to the Lord. And because of that, he had ears to hear. He did those things in days when such things were rare. Few were doing so in Israel. And so one night we read that he's asleep in the temple of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant is there. Samuel's there. Eli's there. And he encounters God. This is what we read. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he, Eli, said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and he lay down. And the Lord again called Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. And Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So Samuel is laying down. He hears a voice. And the only logical option for this boy is that Eli must be calling to him. There's only the person in the temple. So he runs to find him and he says, here I am, what do you need? Right? And Eli's puzzled, he's scratching his head. I didn't call the boy. He's like, go, go back, get out of here, kid, go back and lay down, go back to sleep. It's bedtime. This happens again, right? We read. And then it happens a third time. And here's, here's what happens this time. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down again in his place. Now Eli gets it. He understands what's happening. You know, maybe in in his sleep haze, he finally gets it. It clicks. The boy's not crazy. He is actually hearing something. It's not him. So it must be the Lord, right? It must be God calling out to him. So he instructs Samuel on how to respond when he hears the Lord. So a fourth time, God calls to Samuel. But this time, he's ready. Let's read. And the Lord came and stood, calling at, as he, at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord, the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel in which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle, which I love, that's great. Um, On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning this house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, but his, because of his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by any sacrifice or offering forever. 
So a prophetic word of judgment has come to Samuel against the house of Eli. Samuel shares the word with, uh, the, this word with Eli in the morning, and Eli accepts it. See, Eli, he's already been warned by another prophet that this is going to come to pass. He knows that he's going to be held responsible for his sons and that they will lose their lives and he will pass, pass on. The chapter ends and we're told that all of Israel knew Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. When the priest failed to lead as he should and protect Israel from the predators within, God cast him out and raised up Samuel in his place. So we see that Samuel was called by God to deliver the word of the Lord to the people and call them back to him. And this was done in a time when few were able to hear the word of the Lord. God, in his grace, provided Samuel to speak the word of the Lord to the people. See, to hear from the Lord, Samuel, all he had to do was remain faithful, to be devoted to the Lord. He listened and waited. He responded when the Lord came to him. And the Lord, he was patient with him. Four times it took for the Lord to get Samuel to understand and respond. Four times. So it is with us. The Lord is patient with us. He reveals his truth. He gently calls to us over and over again to turn to him. We need only remain faithful and devoted to him to hear from him. Let's move on. We have one more snapshot to look at this morning. Here we get to see Samuel. He's been established as a prophet. He's speaking the word of Israel, the word of the Lord to Israel. And then we get to see him in action leading the people. Before we get there, though, if you've read along in this book, you know it takes a weird diversion right here. The first three chapters, it's Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. And there's this climactic call event that we just looked at. And then you turn the page, and it's the Ark of the Covenant. And, you're, and Samuel's absent for about three chapters. You're wondering, what's going on here, right? I thought this was the book of Samuel. Where is he? Here, in these next three chapters, Israel, they go into battle with the Philistines and they bring the Ark of the Covenant, which they think is their military superweapon, going to assure their victory. They don't consult the Lord, they just go into battle with it. And this goes poorly for them. The bottom line is they're routed before the, the Philistines and the Ark of the Covenant is captured. This is rock bottom. The bottom of the downward spiral of the days of the judges is the Ark of the Covenant captured and in the hands of the Philistines. It's off in an enemy land. The glory of God has left the people of Israel. It's left the land. So why this side story about the Ark? Why is that important? Well, it's because the Ark represents, it suggests God's rulership, Yahweh's kingship. His presence was enthroned between the cherubim on the lid of the ark. This was the throne of God. It tells us that Israel, Israel's king has been carted off to, to Philist, by the Philistines. He's gone. The king has been captured. Not only that, the Ark of the Covenant, it represents God's revelation to the people. The Ten Commandments, copies of them were in there, and, and God's covenant instructions to his people. God's revealed truth is in the hands of the enemy. The Ark of the Covenant, it rep represents reconciliation as the priest would yearly sprinkle the blood uh, uh, sacrifice of atonement on the lid, the mercy seat. So atonement has left the people. 
the ark, it pointed to Yahweh, the ruling, speaking, forever, forgiving God and Israel's king. And it's in the hands of the Philistines. And so though, though the ark has been captured by the Philistines, it, the ark, God, it goes to battle with them and their god Dagon. You can read about this in, on your own. There's some fascinating chapters. Some very interesting things are happening. Some, some of the more strange chapters in this book. The summary is the Dagon, their, their, their god, ends up face down with its head and hands chopped off. The Philistines are plagued with tumors and ravaging mice. And so naturally they decide what they should do is make golden copies of their tumors and mice, put them on a cart with ark, and send it back to Israel as an atonement. So that's, that's how it goes. So God, he finds his way back to Israel. The ark makes its way back to Israel. God is back with his people, and he does so on his own. He finds his way back to them. The king has returned to his people and to his land. And this gives way, this gives way to, to Israel realizing that they have strayed from God, and they are deeply grieved. In their grieving, Samuel calls them to repent. We're told that they're lamenting to the Lord. They're crying out in anguish to him, and they hear his cry. he hears their cry. He has compassion, and he shows favor to them. Chapter 7 of this book is all about God's mercy on display through the ministry of Samuel. Let's read and see how this plays out for them. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the balls and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. As they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day, and there said, We have sinned against the Lord. They confessed. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So as the people lament, they realize how far they have wandered from God. Samuel, he calls them to true repentance. He says, put that in action. Put away your false gods. Direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. And they do it. They do it. They get rid of the false gods, their means of worshiping them, and they turn their hearts to the Lord only. And Samuel, he sees that they're taking this seriously, that they're really authentic. And he goes one step further. He says, gather all of Israel together and we will fast and confess our unfaithfulness. Samuel is leading the people back to God. Let's keep reading and see what happens. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of the Lord had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. So they've gathered. They've gathered together as Samuel instructed. They've truly repented. They've turned back to God. 
but, but the Philistines, their enemies, they get word of this. They get word that Israel is gathered in one place. They've decided this is the opportunity to strike against them. They're distracted, they're centralized, they're not expecting a battle. Israel seems to be in a place, a compromised place. And Israel, they're fearful. They're fearful because these are the enemies that captured the Ark of the Covenant. In their last face-off, things did not go well for them. This is a chance. This is a chance for their faith to be tested, to see if they will trust Yahweh as authentic. If their trust in him is authentic, their faith is. You know, in, their, in their fear, will they panic and run away? Will they, will they take matters into their own hands? Will they go out to war again without consulting the Lord? Or will they cry out to God and be delivered? Well, as we read, that's just what they did. They remained faithful. They depend on the Lord and they beg Samuel not to cease calling out to God on their behalf. Their fate, it lies in the hands of their God. Their backs are against the wall with no options. Defeat seems likely. They're afraid. And they have no other option. No other option to pray. The situation seemed impossible. Out of their despair, they pray. Just as Hannah prayed out of her despair. She asked out of her despair, just as she did, so Israel does. They pray and they ask for deliverance. And God answers. Let's see how he answers. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines draw near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into a confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. See, the Lord heard Samuel. He heard Israel. Just as his name reminds us every time we say it. God heard. God not only heard, he answered. See, Hannah prayed and God answered with a child out of her barrenness. Israel prayed and God answered with a thundering mighty sound that threw the Philistines into a confused mess where they were ultimately defeated. And again here, the language is very intentional. Threw them into a confusion is the same language used the same words used to describe how God, what God did to Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea during the exodus of Egypt. It's the same language God uses when he promises how he will fight for Israel as they battle the Canaanites and taking the promised land. God's defeat of the Philistines here, it invokes the memories of the previous ways God has saved them, has delivered them from the hands of their adversaries. As the true king, the Lord goes to battle before us. As we cry out to him in despair, out of impossible situations, he throws the enemy into confusion and defeats him. And nowhere is that more clear than at the cross, where out of despair, God defeated sin once for all. 
and in response, in response to their remembering and being delivered, Samuel, he sets up a stone monument called an Ebenezer. It's to remind all that look upon it that the Lord has helped us. The Lord has been faithful to delivering and helping his people in their time of need. He freed them from oppression, delivered them from their enemies in battle, and led them as their king. The Lord has helped them. The Lord has helped us. You see, God was merciful in raising up Samuel and delivering the people from the Philistines. God, in his grace, he provided Samuel to lead them when they needed it. When they were at rock bottom, Samuel is provided. In our time of need, our desperation, God will deliver us just as he did through Israel, through Samuel. It might not always look the way we anticipate or hope, but God will have mercy and deliver us. He always delivers his people. We know that because he already did so in the most complete way possible by defeating sin on our behalf. And so this morning, as we've had a chance to meet Samuel, I hope you've seen it clearly. I hope you've seen God's grace on display. His mercy in the chaos remains front and center in these opening chapters, just as it did in the book of Judges. The people, they forsake God, and the most unthinkable thing happens. The Ark of the Covenant was captured. The king was carted off by the Philistines. And at rock bottom, God was still at work to bring about his plan. Raising up Samuel and bringing him so that he could deliver them. Samuel. Samuel was a seemingly impossible situation. Her and answered her. And through answering her prayers, God blessed Hannah and Israel with the righteous man of God they needed. As Samuel served under Eli, the priest, the Lord called to him in a time when few had ears to hear the Lord. And Hannah's blessing went on to further bless Israel by being a prophet, sharing the word of the Lord for the people, calling them back and leading them to repentance. And as the people repented, Samuel served as a judge, as a deliverer from the hands of the oppressors. God's undeniable grace is stamped all over the story of Samuel's life. It reminds us that even in the most impossible situations, God can turn things around for us. And that's because he is the only true king who fights on our behalf, who hears us and answers. He's the king of heaven and the earthly king whose kingdom we serve and belong to. Will you pray with me?